The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good. So, um, what I did tonight in the guided meditation, you can do because you have access to Venerable Analio doing that guided meditation. And there's a lot of words, right? Because we're we're using our imagination, but you want to internalize it so you can do it at your own pace and uh, in your own creative ways. And we have these three contemplations that are used to correct how we relate to the body, right? The anatomical parts and the elements, and now tonight the impermanence, and we'll emphasize the reflection of impermanence next week as well. And I think I mentioned earlier in the course that um, the whole path, really, you can understand the whole spiritual path. We're using our life, and we're using awareness, and we're using contemplation to transform the way the mind or the heart understands. So there's only one problem with life. Thanks, Barbara. Let me zip this up. Yeah, there's only one problem with life, according to the way the Buddha analyzes the problem, and that problem is that we're misunderstanding. And then we're living as if our way of understanding is real or correct, and so our way of acting in the world, the way of thinking, is off, because it's based on an understanding that isn't in alignment with the way it actually is. So the medicine the Buddha gives us is, Cultivate the stability of wisdom and awareness. Learn how to be intimate. Buddha waking up to Dhamma. Be intimate with the way that it is. And that willingness, it's not easy, but that willingness to be awake, to have that balanced, clear, kind, present moment awareness in an ongoing way, that's what transforms our understanding. We don't think our way towards wise view or think our way towards insight. People have tried that since the beginning of time, or at least since the time of the Buddha, and all you do is get a headache. Or, even worse, maybe you become, this is a joke, a professor of philosophy, or something like that, right? One of the funniest talks I ever heard from Ajahn Sumedho, a really important teacher of mine, was him joking about, there's nothing more, I'm not sure what word he used, but something like pathetic or undesirable as having to go to an international conference of Buddhism <laughs> and talk philosophically about the ideas of Buddhism because it's kind of missing the point. The ideas, the teachings are really jumping off points for this. And remember like with the anatomical parts, it's the first thing where we we use that contemplation of anatomical parts to basically come up with a more accurate story. We're still on the level of concept. Because when I'm contemplating skin or flesh or bones, or if you do the more traditional 32 parts, you know, and the different organs and the different, you know, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails of the hands, nails of the toes, right? So you've got all the different parts. Those are concepts too. But we're, this, uh, using the 32 body parts or the more simple form of flesh or skin, flesh and bones, right? It, it's a more powerful story, a more accurate story. 
then the next contemplation of the elements, we're really going from the good story, oh yeah, this body is just a bunch of parts, to what is it actually subjectively? What is sensation? It's not even a body in terms of, or skin, flesh and bones, it's really hardness, softness, smoothness, roughness, lightness, heaviness, warmth, coolness, movement, stillness, that cohesive sense of the body as a whole. And what am I missing? Did I get them all? Right? So it, it's just the specifics of the elements. So one of the things that, uh, you know, we like three levels of reality, you could say we have the conceptual level, and then we have the specific characteristics level. Like in terms of our visual experience, we have the, you know, the color and the shape. In terms of the auditory experience, you know, timber, pitch, whatever, the different elements, the words we use that point to the elements of the auditory experience. And then in sensation, we have these four elements that I've been talking about tonight. Right, so for each of our sensory experience, there are these specific characteristics of that that aren't dependent on concept. I mean, we have a concept like heaviness and lightness, but the experience of heaviness doesn't need the word heaviness. The experience of lightness or roughness or smoothness isn't dependent on the concept. Just like seeing a bright light isn't dependent that subjective experience of seeing a bright light isn't dependent on the vocabulary bright light. So the second contemplation of the elements is really helping us go from even a good story about the body to the more actual elemental level. So from that first, where we're just sort of correcting the idea of the body as this whole thing, me, <laughs> you know, all wrapped up nicely in this bag of skin. And then on top of that, we have our clothes and our other decorations. And that's what we take for the body. And then we realize, no, you know what? It's just a bunch of parts. It's just a bunch of parts that are neither attractive nor non-attractive. It's just stuff. Lots of stuff. You know. And then we go from that concept to actually, subjectively, it's just these specific sensations, this dance of sensation. And these sensations that I'm experiencing all the time, it's really not different than the, you know, the collection of sensations you're experiencing or any being. You know, my experience of hardness isn't probably that different than my cat's experience of hardness. Not my idea. My idea of hardness is very different than probably my cat. Like what I add to that experience of hardness or warmth. But the direct experiencing of warmth is very impersonal. It's not specific to this being or that being, right? So that's what, and that second, that shift from the conceptual to the actual, that's Dhamma. When we talk about Dhamma, one of the definitions of that word Dharma or Dhamma is the way it is. Like not mediated so much by the concept. I mean, we do have concepts that like heaviness, or hardness, but we can know hardness without sort of the um, being contaminated by the concept or the label. And then there's a step more, and this is really what this last contemplation really helps us with, 
the contemplation now traditionally, and we'll talk, we'll get to it tonight and for sure next week if we don't have time tonight. But they, they, um, the Buddha recommends actually, you know, we don't see it too much these days. Um, but bodies actually fall apart. <laughs> you know, we're very good at either filling a dead body with preservatives or burning it. So we don't really see that with a human body. And we don't really, in the city at least, we don't really see it too much even with other bodies. Sometimes, you know, if we're lucky, we see a fly that has been at the window and then all of a sudden we see the corpse of the fly sitting there on the window seal, you know, and then after a few weeks it becomes devoid of any moisture, so it's just like light as nothing. But, you know, that's sort of the rare event where we see some kind of decomposition, the very natural falling apart of a body. So traditionally you would do a, what's called a cemetery or corpse contemplation, and you would just imagine it. And there, you know, because there's a lot of Buddhists out there in the wider world, online you can find very clear pictures of uh, the comp uh, decomposition of a body. People have contributed their bodies, you know, before they die, of course, they agree to sort of let their bodies fall apart and somebody takes photographs so that people who want to do this contemplation, but we have our imaginations but Venerable Analio, you know, he created this uh, very simple way of just connecting impermanence with the breath. But I put three meditations in the email this afternoon, one by one of the senior bhikkhunis, Buddhist nuns, uh, Aya Mendanandi, a really wonderful, powerful teacher, one by Venerable, two by Venerable Analio. One was the one we did tonight with the breath and just contemplating, oh yeah, this could be the last breath but certainly it's one breath closer. Okay, can I be okay? Can I relax? Can I settle? Okay, let me bring that up again as I'm breathing. Oh yeah, one more breath in, maybe the last, who knows? And then relax with the out breath. So that's one. And the other one is more of a traditional reflection that Venerable Analio offers. So for those of you who want more of that traditional medicine, Dharma medicine, of the corpse contemplation, remember it's a medicine to be used appropriately. It's not about scaring ourselves and it's not about going down some obsessive tunnel, oh my God, I'm going to die, where we just, because we can really scare ourselves, but it's not death that we're afraid of. It's our idea of death that's scary. And that's really important. That's this thing about using the idea of death to help bring us into the vivid simplicity of the present moment. And to do that, we have to remove the idea of the past and the future. The future is uncertain. Isn't that true? Anybody have any guarantees about the future? We don't. Anything could happen. Things do happen. I mean, I don't know if you caught this in the paper, but a very big piece of a jet's engine fell from the sky outside of Denver just a couple of days ago. And there's just a picture. I mean, this thing, it looked, it was, you know, a piece of the engine, the round piece. It was a big piece of metal just fell from the sky. I don't think it hurt anybody. Um, 
But I mean, this kind of stuff can happen. And no, it's again, not about frightening herself, but just like, I can't count on tomorrow. I certainly can't count on 20 more years. And when I'm really <clears throat> honest, when I think about the future more and more, I have this reality, who knows? Oh yeah, that's possible, but who knows? Oh, that would be nice, but who, who knows? Oh, I don't want that to happen, but who knows? Who knows? And then we remember the past is gone, the future is uncertain, there's only this moment, one moment at a time. And that's really the point of the contemplation of death, because that really brings us from the specific characteristics of the body that we do with the elements contemplation to this universal truth that nothing can be counted on. And that's true with our body. <clears throat> and when we haven't done the contemplation of impermanence, strangely, even though intellectually we know the body's going to die, I'm sure this is not a surprise to anybody in the group, right? Like, I don't see anybody freaking, what? <laughs> this body's going to die? Nobody told me. <clears throat> so we know intellectually, but can we take that intellectual knowing and and really like let it get integrated in throughout the moment-to-moment -moment understanding, the way the mind is sort of constructing meaning, can it integrate into the moment-to-moment -moment meaning? Oh yeah, this is what is, the future is unknown and uncertain, the past is completely gone, doesn't exist. And any idea I have about the past is that ephemeral thing right here and now. Oh yeah, Sunday I did this, but that's here and now, and then it's gone. And the past doesn't exist, and the future's uncertain, and I have this, and this, and this. This is what we have. So this is from uh, Christina Feldman's book, Boundless Heart. She's one of our senior teachers in this Western Vipassana insight meditation, or more and more we call it early Buddhism, mostly teaches at uh, Gaia House in England. And she's writing about these four distortions, because I've been mentioning that these three contemplations, and then in the spring, which by now, uh, you can register now for the Buddhist studies course in the spring, where we'll be contemplating feeling tone the pleasantness and unpleasantness of experience. Um, these parts of the Satipatthana, the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, they're really about correcting our view, how we relate to experience. And when we contemplate the anatomical parts, we're correcting this habit of seeing things in terms of being beautiful or ugly. You know, and it's like, it's totally okay to know what you find beautiful and what you find disgusting. There's no problem with that. But we want to understand that when I see something beautiful, it's because of how I'm looking at the experience. Like, for example, we have some paintings and pictures in our living room where I'm at. And, you know, if I look at the picture as a whole, I might go, I like that picture. 
that if I look at one little piece, you know, some pigment or some brush strokes or some part of the wood frame, I don't find that attractive. What I find attractive is the whole thing, right? It's the same thing if we see a person we find attractive. Is it the skin on the backside of their index finger that we find attractive? No, it's the whole package, right, that we find attractive. Same thing with disgusting, you know, if we see something we don't like. Is it because of, you know, this little thing or that little aspect of it? No, it's the sort of general conclusion, I don't like that. So when we learn this power of deconstructing experiences into the parts, it really takes away this duality of beauty and ugliness, attractiveness and unattractiveness. We realize more and more as we live our life, that's just a construction. It can be a useful construction. We're not saying it's an evil construction of our mind. We're just understanding that it's a duality the mind constructs. So do this, you know, when you're around like a body that you find attractive, just just play with it like you're wherever. I mean, we're not hanging out very much together, but, you know, on TV you see a body you find attractive. Then just deconstruct it. Oh yeah, that body has a bunch of skin, has a bunch of fleshy parts, their bones. Yeah, probably a liver in there somewhere, you know, probably nails, toenails, fingernails, hair of the head, hair of the body. Probably some fat in that body, some muscle. You know, you just kind of remember that. And you'll see that how your mind understands, like the seductiveness of the idea that it's pleasant gets weaker or that it's attractive. It just gets weaker. You can do the same thing with something you find disgusting. And you realize, you know, you know, next time you see a spider that you find disgusting, well, you know what it is? It's just some fluid in there. Not much, but some juicy parts and a spider, right? And some, they have an exoskeleton, I suppose. So not so much bones, but like the hard exoskeleton. And, you know, so no skin, I guess. <laughs> a little hair, right? They get, they have some hair. I guess maybe that's skin. But it's just those parts. And when you really like, if, if you just came across a little part of a spider, you would think, oh, repulsive, right? Or anything that you think is repulsive. It's just oh, it's just that little piece of that. So play with this contemplation, how it corrects that distortion of there are that things are either beautiful or ugly. So um, this is from Christina. She's talking about these four distortions. The absence of beauty is just one of them. Like we move through life as if things are beautiful and ugly. She writes, The chaos, confusion, and struggle so familiar to us is not a life sentence, but created and recreated through confusion one moment at a time. Understanding for ourselves the anatomy of confusion, we can dispel it one moment at a time. Learning to liberate this single moment from struggle is a building block of coming to know the end of all the confusion and the liberated heart. Now I put this in the I put this little blurb in uh, the we, uh, the email this afternoon, so I want to read one more paragraph where she goes through these four distortions. Distortions of how we perceive and think and view. So she she writes, 
the Buddha identified four primary tools of confusion and struggle. The first is the tendency to seek and see permanence in a life that is purely process, fluid, dynamic, and changeable. The second is to see the beautiful and that which is not implicitly beautiful. That's what we just talked about. We posit the capacity to deliver happiness in that which cannot yield enduring happiness and find ourselves enchanted not only with the world of objects, but with our own fantasies about the happiness those objects, events, and experience will deliver. The third is to see that which is unsatisfactory as being satisfactory. Stripped of confidence and aspiration, we resign ourselves to a world of confusion and despair, marked by transient moments of pleasure. The fourth is to see an independent self in all things. The tendency to rarefy and define ourselves by changing phenomena and to invest an independent self-existence in all things occurs in each moment of clinging. The Buddha suggested that as long as these distorted views, perceptions, ways of thinking remain unquestioned, there are in place all the necessary ingredients for the creation and recreation of suffering. Distress, she writes. These views deeply embedded in our consciousness are the fertile ground for craving, aversion, fear, and grasping to grow. They are the fuel of perpetuating all distress. In any moment of distress and struggle in our lives, we can learn to pause and examine the anatomy of that distress. We can learn to liberate our hearts, to relinquish our arguments with the unarguable, and that, that's a great line, to, relinqu to relinquish our arguments with the unarguable, and to come to know what, is, what it is to live in the light of what we know, an embodied understanding. So that, again, that's from Christina Feldman's book, Boundless Heart. It's a really nice book. It's on the four divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. From one of my teachers, uh, Saida Utejaniya, we can't really know the body. We can only think of the body, but we cannot experience body. He has in quotes. We experience the feeling of the elements, earth, water, heat, and air. Right? So this is what we're learning. We're um, taking up the these three contemplations of the body, and then we're noticing how the way we understand, perceive, and think about the body slowly changes. Now this isn't going to be overnight. I mean, you might have a so-called breakthrough experience or insight, but generally, it's a slow, gradual process of transforming the way the mind perceives, thinks about, and understands. And it's not just this body, but other people's bodies, too. We're transforming how we perceive and think and understand body. So this is so interesting that the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's talk on the, how to establish mindfulness is really mostly about correcting our view because we have so much programming 
in terms of how we see body, that we can't actually be mindful of the body. Like when we sit down to meditate, especially as a new meditator, it's like, you know, we might have a moment where we realize, oh yeah, the body's sitting, it feels like this, like a real moment of the elements, like feeling the hardness of the butt on the cushion or something like that. But immediately we're in our idea and it's some mental image of the body. And then we're in our idea that I don't like my body or I got a great body, you know, or how about my body compared to that body? And then we're pretty soon we're just off to the races and one thought leading to the next. Because we don't know how to be in the immediacy of the experience of the body. It takes some real practice. We're very much used to being living basically in our ideas about things. So I want to save some time to go um, to the questions that people have sent in. But before this, and we'll spend more time next week, let me just read the <clears throat> traditional cemetery contemplation. And remember, we're using this as a useful, helpful medicine. So remember, like when we were kids and we didn't like hearing what we were hearing, we go, la, 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 la. <laughs> but you have something more sophisticated. You can just mute me or turn the volume down. But remember, even though it's, you know, this traditional way of seeing the decomposition of a body, you know, it's not really ugly. The fact that things mold, you know, or fester or bloat or whatever, that's just nature. All of this life that we're participating in only exists because things fall apart. If things didn't fall apart, we wouldn't have life, right? Life depends on this recycling of everything. And recycling depends on things breaking down. So the fact that we find it disgusting generally, right, is simply because we haven't done the work to integrate the truth of impermanence. And when we do that, and we stumble upon a body that's been dead, like a dead squirrel that's been dead for, you know, a couple months, we won't have that wave of repulsion when we see the maggots or we see this or we see that about it. It will be more, whoa, that's kind of interesting. You know, oh, this is how that happens. This is what that smells like or looks like. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Of course. So here, here we go. This is the translation and this is Venerable Analio's translation of the this section uh, where the Buddha is talking about mindfulness of body, and this is the third contemplation. As though, right, because we're using our imagination, as though one were to see a corpse thrown away in a charnel ground that is one, two, three days dead, being bloated, livid, and oozing matter. And one compares the same body with it. This body, too, is of that same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So then we just sit with that truth. And again, you can just use your imagination. You probably, to some degree, you know, even if it's just meat that was left in the fridge too long, and we sense that breakdown, Oh yeah, this body has the same nature 
as that. I'm not exempt from that nature. This body, rather, isn't exempt from that. And then the second, again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown away in a charnel ground that is being devoured by crows and hawks and vultures, dogs and jackals, or various kinds of worms. So this is the second part of that contemplation. Oh yeah, how natural it would be for animals, other animals, other creatures to feed on a body that's died. Well, of course. Have you ever noticed that when a bird hits one of our windows, you know, and dies, it isn't long before it's gone. Whether it's the raccoon that gets it or a cat, but something's going to eat it. So we contemplate that. Keep it in mind. Notice what effects it has in the heart. The third, a corpse thrown away in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together by the sinews. A skeleton without flesh, smeared with blood and held together by the sinews. A skeleton without flesh and without blood held together by the sinews, right? So it's just the skeleton is drying out. Disconnected bones scattered in the main. Here a hand bone, elsewhere a foot bone, elsewhere a shin bone, elsewhere a thigh bone, elsewhere a hip bone, elsewhere a backbone, elsewhere a skull. Right, so the sinews have disintegrated and probably other creatures have scattered the bones. So you could just imagine now the bones aren't even held together as a whole skeleton. Oh yeah, just bones. Corpse thrown away in a charnel ground, bones bleached white, the color of shells. We probably have stumbled upon, I know at Prairie Farm, Common Grounds Retreat property, out in the woods, they are. Uh, they must have slaughtered some cows out there because there are big bones just sort of scattered here and there in the woods. And uh, it's where they recently, I mean, this is probably more than 40 years ago because they planted some trees. So this was probably at one time a field where they maybe slaughtered some cows. They, they look too big to be deer bones. Bones heaped up, more than a year old, bones rotten and crumbling to dust, and one compares the same body with it. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Good, so that's the traditional cemetery reflection, and we'll come back to that next week in a suitable way. But I want to cover some of the wonderful comments and questions that people sent in. Let's see if we can get to some of them. So I mentioned Mary sent this in last week. And there's really three questions that are about dispassion towards the body. So this is from Mary. and just reading part of the email that came in. Of late, I've been exploring the benefits of being more in touch with my body and its messages as opposed to controlling it in an effort to conform to my wishes, and then in parentheses, to be thinner, stronger, etc. In the class meditations, 
and the meditations you've suggested we explore, it seems to suggest being detached from the body. Would you please comment on the difference between being attuned to the body versus understanding the body as skin, flesh, and bones? Well, that first contemplation, the anatomical parts, is really just to challenge the story, the concept we have of the body, by presenting another very compelling story, because rationally we know it's just a bunch of parts. So that's why it's a compelling story, and it challenges the story of the body as a whole, which is very tied to all my thoughts about my body. When I think about my body, I'm not thinking about the parts. I'm thinking about the whole thing, right? So we're challenging that with that. And, uh, you know, interestingly, the freedom from attachment, being attached to our concepts and ideas, our inaccurate concepts and ideas, it depends on being more intimate, more truthful, having a more honest, real relationship with the body. So we think of detachment like, oh yeah, skin, flesh, and bones, I'm getting detached. But actually we want the movement to be the opposite. We want to learn how to come home. We want to learn how to live in this embodied way. But to do it, we have to uproot these idealistic ideas we have about the body. And that's really what these three contemplations are about. So... Um, People are absolutely right. The way we relate to the body is going to radically change. It will get cooler, more balanced, but it won't be less intimate. It will be more and more intimate and more and more real and more and more sensitive. How we relate to this body, how we relate to other bodies. But what we will have to grieve our idea of the body, because our idea of the body, our conception of the body has never been real. It's an idea, a story, and a, and a story that's not that connected with reality. And that, that's, it's challenging, and it's a powerful shift, this shift of how we ordinarily relate to body, to what the Buddha's teachings lead us, the way it leads us to relate to the body. But you'll see that everything works better when we have a more grounded, accurate, intimate relationship with the body. So that detachment, if you're feeling detached, separate, then you might want to talk to a teacher or reflect on what you're doing and how aversion might be creeping into your reflection. These reflections are not about aversion. We're not forcing anything. We're just trying to get closer to the way it is. Buddha knowing Dhamma. Thanks for that, Mary. And like I said, uh, the next two, one from Charlie and one from Scott, kind of hitting different angles of the same thing. Um, this is from Charlie. I understand that seeing the body as a pile of different stuff, similar to a bag of seeds, can help us relate with a cool, liberating, and peaceful dispassion. In rare moments, I have touched this and seen its value. However, I wonder how to integrate this insight with sexual energy. 
It feels wholesome and right not to deny or run away from sexual energy and have it to be, and have it be a part of a healthy partner relationship. But so often sexual energy is intimately related to perceptions of the body as inherently attractive, which maybe seems at odd at odds with viewing it as a pile of stuff. So it feels like perhaps two wholesome aspirations are in conflict. Yeah, a very interesting thing for us, all of us who are involved in sexual activities, to explore, not force anything, but to explore because we're interested and just having a more honest, grounded, intimate relationship with reality. And, and like, are we willing to allow our way of, uh, you know, engaging sexual energy, are we willing to let it change as we change? Well, for one, it's already changing. You know, I'm 62. How I relate to sexual energy is different than when I was 30, right? So things are changing anyway around that. And the question is, are we afraid of the truth or not? Do we want to align with the truth? Or do we want to align with all the pop songs we heard about bodies, <laughs> you know, and love and sex? What do we trust more? And it's a really interesting thing to explore. I'm not saying that it uh, isn't impactful. I'm just saying maybe that's okay that it's impactful. And maybe like uh, Charlie says in this last uh, paragraph that I didn't read, you know, um, let's see, I suppose one possible resolution to the seeming tension is that there are other channels through which sexual energy can be expressed. Now that would be a very interesting thing for us to explore. And Charlie writes, aside from perceptions of the body as essentially beautiful, such as a basic sense of trust, respect, and appreciation with another person, or just the simple, pleasant physical sensations of sexual energy. Yeah, something more, less obsessive and more about play and more about generosity, helping each other feel good, right? Because we care and because it's not causing anybody harm. So why wouldn't we want to play together in a way that we both find pleasant? And what is pleasantness? Well, that's the spring course, <laughs> right? Mindfulness of feeling tone. That's what we'll be doing in the uh, seven-week spring course. We'll be digging into that. Let's see, we have time maybe for Scott's comment. In follow-up to last week's class on mindfulness of the body, I see the importance of not identifying with or being attached to the body and how seeing it as impermanent, even decaying, a pile of ashes can be helpful. But as a chiropractor who was previously an architecture student, I've always seen the human brain as the most incredible computer and the human body with its many complex systems all whirling away in harmony as a symphony of function and form and have felt that we are all so lucky to have been gifted with these as the vehicles we get to explore life with. This makes it tricky to consider the brain or body as just skin, flesh and bones. I see that even I see that even fantastic machines are impermanent and the risk of attachment for attachment that seeing the body as incredible creates. But it really is. <laughs> Your thoughts. Thanks, Scott, for that great question. Yeah, and it's all about medicine. Like this is the thing 
that the Buddhist teachings are really valuable, which is perception, thought, and understanding is to be used pragmatically. See, our, in our ordinary way, we think that perception and how we think and how we understand, it's all about truth in an absolute sense. But it, from the Dharma point of view, we're using perception, thinking, and the way we view to correct bad habits. It's not that one view is <clears throat> correct and another is wrong. It's we want to be free of all fixed views. So to be free of the fixedness, the mind being dependent on an idea, we use ideas that challenge the fixed ideas um, skillfully. We use ideas to challenge fixed ideas, thereby liberating the mind from fixed ideas. Then do we hold on to the idea we use to liberate the mind from a fixed idea? No, we let it go. And that's that, a lot of you have heard that, and I'll end here, that famous talk where the Buddha talks about the raft. Right? We use the raft to cross the flood. All of our habits of worrying and fretting and lamenting and struggling. And then the Buddha asks, so once you got across the flood, what do you do with the raft? You let it go. You don't carry the raft around. So we're using these contemplations not as absolute truths. So it's like, for example, if, if somebody um, was raised and conditioned to think of the body as being disgusting and my body is no good, then they might really want to meet with Scott and to sort of borrow his perception of the body where he has this capacity to see the beauty in nature because the body is just nature, right? And that might really help that person heal and challenge the fixed view that my body's ugly or no good, right? Unattractive. But if somebody has this sort of, you know, they're enthralled with their body or just bodies in general, then they might want to see it in a more ordinary, unattractive way. Oh, it's just a bunch of parts, right? Because that contemplation, all three of these contemplations, anatomical parts, the elements, impermanence, they're just skillful means to help loosen our fixed ideas of the body. They're not about the truth. It's about the truth, in a sense, you know, the liberating truth is realizing the mind that isn't fixed, that can be in a world of ideas, can use language, but doesn't neurotically hold to ideas, including the idea of self. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.